What's up with Christians and commands? You guys ever run into people like that? People who think, you know, you guys are obsessed with the law. Ten commandments, do this, you got to do that. You got to love God, you got to love others. And they almost seem to boil down Christianity Christianity to mere moralism, doing and fulfilling the commands. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, how are we supposed to respond to that? You guys are obsessed with commands. How do we respond to that? I think our passage today in 1 John chapter 2, go ahead and turn there now, 1 John chapter 2. John helps us address this misconception. I mean, yes, we do to some degree want to be obsessed with the law, but we want to have, we want to couch that. There are a lot of other caveats we got to say in relation to it. It all depends how we look at the issue of the law and especially who stands behind the law. John, probably an old man, was writing to Christians and churches here as he wrote this letter, 1 John. John also wrote 2 John, 3 John. He wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote the Gospel of John. But our focus today is on 1 John. And he's writing this letter to a group of Christians, to a church who, who was, you know, they're, they're growing in their faith. But there were people in the church who were rejecting some of the core fundamentals of Christianity. They were rejecting, in fact, that Jesus was the God-man. They were rejecting the fact that they were sinners before a holy God, as we saw last week. And it seems that to some degree they were also rejecting that they had to be loving their brothers, it seems, by the passage. So last week we looked at uh, a test. We looked at how those who love Jesus, those who claim to have fellowship with him, they walk, they walk as Jesus walked. They walk in holiness. They walk in the light as God is in the light. And therefore, they're going to claim very happily that they are sinners who can fly to this Jesus Christ who forgives them. Here in our passage today, John sort of continues that argument that we must walk in the light as God is in the light. And then he expands on this idea of what it looks like to actually live like Jesus did and to obey this Jesus who commands us. To do certain things. From our passage today, we, we see the fact that true Christians obey God by loving his children and not the world. So that's like the main headline for today's sermons. True Christians obey God and love his children, or by loving his children, and not the world. And so he takes us around and he wants us to examine ourselves. He takes us around to these way stations or inspection state inspection stations. First, he takes us, as we saw earlier, to the doctrinal station. Do you believe that Jesus is the God-man? And then he takes us to the morality statement. Do you believe, do you obey Jesus' commands? And then he takes us to the social way station or inspection station where we are supposed to be reflecting on our own state and those others who claim to be Christians. Do you love other Christians? So as we read and as we reflect, I hope and I pray that we all would be able to analyze ourselves weigh ourselves and inspect ourselves so let's look first at the fact that true christians obey god true christians obey god this is verses three to six this is what it says in chapter two and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see that repetition there? The sort of bookends of that section there, verse 3. He says there, and we know we know we know him. We know we know him, so he's offering confidence there. We know we know him if we keep Jesus' commands. And then the next thing he says, he talks about the man who does not keep what he commands. And then he finishes off going back to the guy who, the true Christian, who walks in the same way in which Jesus walks here. So he's, he's offering a lot of clarity and he's offering assurance for those of us who follow. This here is a faith that actually does something. A faith that actually follows and obeys Jesus' commands. Okay, so here's where a lot of people tend to say, what's with Christians and commands? Is this mere morality? We're supposed to do this and do that, fulfill the Ten Commandments, as if that's all that God wants us to do? And then we get to offer a correction. Christianity has never been about obsessing over laws. Never been about obsessing over laws. Now, sure, some people, they do. But that just sort of reflects the the fact that they don't actually know the sum and substance of Christianity fully. At the foundation of Christianity stands a person, Jesus Christ. And we don't merely follow his laws and ways. We actually love him for who he is and what he alone accomplishes. We actually love him. And it is a love, in fact, that undergirds all of the law. So, so it, it, you know, if, it, do we obsess over the law? Yeah, sure, we do. It depends on what you mean by that. Because we love him who is given the law. We love his words. And, in fact, love undergirds the whole entire law. And so Jesus actually writing to some people who were obsessing about the law and had sort of eclipsed the giver of the law this is what jesus says he's he's speaking to pharisees here who were very self-righteous obsessed with the law in a cold impersonal way they come up to him and sort of test jesus teacher which is the greatest commandment in the law jesus answered you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the great and first commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So here the Pharisees, they prized the law, but they had forgotten about God, the giver of the law, whose character is revealed through the law and who gives the law so that we might learn to love him and love others. Um, So this is how it works. Okay, this is how I can be obsessed with God, the giver of the law. And then at the very same time, be obsessed with his law. So, so yes, we are obsessed, but in a good way, a good way in which it just testifies to the fact that we love him. And his word is an extension almost of who he is. So when I follow Jesus' commands, I affirm everything that the scripture says about Jesus. When I follow Christ's commands, I affirm everything that God says about himself. And I tell you that I love him. And that he is worthy of it. So when a child obeys his parent, not only in action, but with a heart, right? With with his whole entire heart, it's a statement. 
And it's a statement, let's say, that he's making to all of his other friends or his siblings. I trust my dad. I really do. When he tells me I shouldn't play Angry Birds for eight hours a day. And he explains it to me. Why it's good and why it's not good. And then I listen to him from my heart. It says he's trustworthy and he is wise. So when God tells me I shouldn't have sex outside of the bounds that he has given us in scripture. And then he tells us why it is good and why it is not good to obey and then to disobey. I say to him. In my obedience. That Christ's love to his church is committed love. I say to everyone, yes, God is singular in his love. By obeying and fulfilling his command. I say his love is steadfast and his love is pure. I'm testifying something about God's character. I love him whose character is revealed in the law. Okay, when he tells us that we shouldn't lie or that we shouldn't twist words, that we shouldn't shade the truth. And he explains that lying only breeds suspicion, disunity, doubt. It shades reality. But then he tells me his truth reveals knowledge. And breeds trust and community. And then we don't lie. And then we repent of it when we do. We say, yes, God is truthful. And I thank God for being a God who discloses and reveals. I love him. And I show that by obeying his commands. When he commands me to turn from my sin. When he commands me to turn from my sin. He commands me to believe in him. For forgiveness and reconciliation and being at one with the Father, I say, yes, this indeed is a God of grace. This indeed is a God of mercy who calls me to leave those things and to run to him. He doesn't make me earn my way out of hell. He just calls me to confess and go to him. And I'm making a statement in my my obedience. So you see that when I obey his commands, I affirm that God is who he says he is. It's exactly what Adam Eve was supposed to do. And it's exactly what they did not do, actually, as they rebelled against God, decided to follow their own commands and rejected him and everything that he is. And in doing so, they made a statement that we are shepherds unto ourselves and that he is not. He is to be doubted, etc., etc. And in so doing, they earn for themselves just condemnation. They earn themselves judgment. But for those who obey, we say this God is trustworthy. I mean, can you imagine that living out your life in holiness, pursuing God around the culture that you grow up in who don't believe in God? And there you are with absolute peace saying to all of them, yes, you know what? I might want to do these things and I might struggle to do these things. But I'm saying to you all just through my trusting in Christ, my resting in Christ and his providence and his sovereignty and his commands and in his love. I say, I trust this person. I trust that person so much more than if I trust in myself. Now, if that's what it means to be obsessed with the law, may we all be obsessed with God's law because we love him who stands behind it. This is what Jesus said, John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, do you see that? That's relational language. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then speaking in parallel fashion, he says there in verse five of our chapter today, in loving others, it says God's love is perfected. 
Now that can be interpreted in a couple ways, a few ways. This could mean God's love for the person is perfected as they sort of love back towards God. This could also mean that they love or, or they are loving like God's love. It's similar to God's love, and that, that's why it's perfected. Or it just means that the person's love for God. That's what he's talking about. The person's love for God is perfected. And I think that's what he's talking about because loyalty is proof of love. Loyalty is proof of love. First John 5, 3. This is what it says. Go ahead and turn over there. First John 5, verse 3. This is love for God. So if you guys want to know what love for God looks like, he boils it down. This is love for God that we obey his commandments. Just reflects Jesus' teaching here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the one who obeys really does, in fact, love. If he's loving with a pure heart there. And there God's truth is really in him. But... The guy who says, I know Jesus, I am partnered with Jesus in will, desire, and purpose, but I don't keep his commands. John says this person there is a liar and the truth is not in him. True Christians obey God, more specifically by loving God's children. This brings us to point number two. True Christians obey God and love his children. So you you guys remember that the two things that undergird all of God's law is love for God and then love for one another. And this is key. Love for one another. And it has a special place in God's kingdom. This this love, this, this outpouring of self, this giving our hearts and giving ourselves away so that it moves outward. That's key. That is, in fact, the way of God. That is the way of God. And he speaks about this in verses 7 to 11. And he's getting at loving the brothers. This is the way of God. And it makes sense if we understand who God is. It is the king's way. So the question has been asked. uh, What was God doing before the creation of the world? It's a fascinating question. What was God doing before the foundation of the world? And you know what Jesus says? He answers that question. For all of us who might be given to uh, a somewhat speculative mind here. He says, you, that he's speaking to the father. He says, you, the father, loved me before the foundation of the world. So before the foundation of the world, before creation ever happened, what was God doing? The father was giving himself to the son. That's the very nature of the king here. the, The very nature of God. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's inherent to the character of God in the Trinity as they relate to one another. And then we ask the question, well, why did God send Jesus? For God so loved the world that he sent his son, John three sixteen. Why did Jesus take on flesh, we might ask? He loved us by humbling himself and made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Why did Jesus lay down his life on the cross? Because Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's from Ephesians 5.25. 
And as we are being saved, as we live this life now, we know that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 8, 39. So love is the king's way. Whether it be before the creation of the world, between the persons of the Trinity, or whether it be most fully displayed in Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners. And just as love is the way of the king and his kingdom, so it is to be with the citizens. Look there, again, he's, John is getting that, loving the brothers. And so he commands them. Look at verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. There he's talking about when they first heard about the gospel. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now that he hasn't quite gotten to love yet, but he's going to there in verse nine. We'll go ahead and read those two. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So if we back up and we look at verses 7 and 8, it can be a little bit confusing at first glance. You know, is this an old commandment? Is this a new commandment? Is John getting confused? Uh, In what sense is it old and in what sense is it new? Well, as Pastor Pastor Rick read earlier, you know, this commandment has been around for a very long time. So it certainly is old. All the way back in Leviticus, in the law of Moses, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God is the same God. The God who wrote the Old Testament, same God who wrote the New Testament. Love is present in both. He's commanding them to love neighbor as yourself. But then at the same time in verse 8, you see there, it certainly is a new commandment. He says, I'm writing to you a new commandment. But if we continue reading there, we actually get clarity as to why it might be new. He says it's a new commandment, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So there it says the truth of this new command is true in Jesus. So what does it mean to be true in Jesus? Well, it's the fact that in Christ Jesus, there is a dawning of the new age. A dawning of the new age. So a new period of history has begun in Christ. And I've I've used this visual before, and it helps me understand this sort of old and newness, the oldness that was the world and the newness that is in Jesus. If you can imagine just a world, uh, you know, created by God, the people created to have perfect fellowship with God, but then they rebel, right? Adam and Eve rebel. All men have rebelled against God, their mighty creator, chosen to do what we want instead of what he commands, chosen to walk after self-love as opposed to walking in God's love. And because of this sin, a dark shroud has sort of covered the whole entire earth. So imagine just living in darkness, covered by a dark shroud. And the question is, then how will we be freed from judgment, freed from darkness and freed then to live in fellowship with God again? And then God in his perfect timing determines to send Jesus Christ, the true light into the world. And so what happens in his coming is it, he pierces from the heavenlies. He pierces this dark shroud that covers and that blinds all of us. And then, of course, you can imagine if, if we're covered in a dark shroud and Jesus Christ pierces through the true light that shines in the darkness. 
all of a sudden, you know, we're able to see. We're able to see ourselves the way that God sees us. We look around and we're able to see one another as God sees us. And then at the same time, with the shedding of light and the shedding of air, we can actually breathe. And, and Jesus sends this darkness reeling back because he exposes and he is the light. So when the light shines, we are woken from slumber. As scripture says, arise, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So Christ sends this darkness reeling back through his death on the cross in which he bore our sins and the wrath that we deserved on himself. He died where we were supposed to die so that we might live to God and live in the light. And in Christ, this new age has dawned. And it's this new age marked by love. Remember, because that is the way of the king. And so when he shines his light into the darkness, he loves And that's what he's doing there in sending Christ for God so loved. It is true in Jesus. This new commandment. It's it's this dawning, this new period. This full display of his love. It is true in him. But then it's also true in his followers. It is true in him and in you. The darkness is passing away by God's grace. And the true light is already shining. John 13, 34 and 35 says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And by this, all men shall know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But if we aren't loving one another, if we aren't walking in the same ways in which the king walks, living according to his kingdom, the ethic of the kingdom, he says there in verse nine, we are still in darkness, still shrouded. The light hasn't yet penetrated and softened our hearts, still living underneath this shroud. Look there in verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's interesting, interesting, if you go back and look at that Leviticus passage, you know, we wonder there, what does it mean to hate the brother, to hate your fellow Israelite? There, he's not talking about positively hating. He's just talking about really forgetting to love. That's what it looks like to hate, according to Leviticus, forgetting to love according to Christ's ways is self-love is loving yourself and not giving yourself to other others which is exactly what god the father does so keep in mind this is meant to help us sift ourselves to examine ourselves and at the same time it's meant to offer confidence to you all believers how's your confidence as you examine yourselves thinking about if you love the brothers how do you match up to loving like christ loved giving yourself yes for the temporal good of others but especially for the spiritual and eternal good of his people which is exactly what jesus does he sees jerusalem and all of the souls there who are wandering away and he weeps for them because they are blinded and so he comes to enlighten people's eyes to the truth that is himself now some of you guys might be discouraged 
Some of you guys might be discouraged. Maybe you don't see any fruit of love in your own life. If you are a believer and you may be discouraged, I think it's I think it it, it could reflect a number of things. One of the things it could reflect is the fact that maybe you've never had an example of what it looks like to love, right? I mean, there's a difference there. There's a difference between not caring at all about loving and then also maybe just being ignorant of what it looks like to love. Now, some people who claim to be Christians, they, also, they, they might look, look at themselves, recognize that there is no fruit and say, gosh, you know what? I really don't care. Other Christians, they might have that motive to care and desire to care. They just don't know really what it looks like. They simply don't know what it looks like to love. But the great news, friends, is that we have examples, plenty of examples. So think about the church. This is what the church is for. Now, I'm not talking about the, the universal church over across the whole entire world. I'm talking about this in particular church. We provide examples for one another. All of us provide examples for one another. The question is, are you looking to learn? Are you a humble learner of what it looks like to love? seeking to love so whether you are older however you, you might define that define yourself to be older or more mature or whether you are younger younger in the faith younger in age whatever i mean do you show yourself to be a humble learner by making others here in this church your examples and then following them it's not a bad thing to follow it is not a bad thing to po- follow paul expects christians to follow him right insofar as he follows jesus christ so if you think about, okay, who are the people, the brothers and sisters that I trust here in this church? Do I follow their example? Am I a humble learner? What does it look like to be a humble learner? It means that if I know that I can learn from them, I think about questions to ask of them. Questions that they can teach, answer, and, and in so doing, teach me what it looks like to love, to give themselves to desiring the spiritual good of another person. So think about that. Who in this church gives themselves for the spiritual benefit of the sheep and follow those people? It doesn't have to be a pastor. It ought to be a pastor, yes, but it ought to include so many, so many more people than that. So find those people and just watch them, study from them, learn from them. Not only do we get to look at the church, we also get to look at the apostles, right? I mean, we have the example of the apostles who literally gave themselves their lives for our spiritual benefit. So this word, they bled in writing it for our benefits. And then ultimately we have the example of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone who built the church, who laid down his life on the cross so that we would be reconciled to God. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you could keep my commands. John fifteen thirteen. So we have examples question is are we humbly learning well how can we all grow as a church in loving our brothers and sisters practical examples okay practical examples for you guys reach out to others in the church really basic reach out to others in the church and to and try and do that to people that you don't normally spend time with try and do that to people that you don't normally spend time with be open to welcoming them into your home and then be open to asking them about themselves, trying to, seeking to develop an awareness of these people 
their struggles, their loves, the difficulties that they go through in their lives, how they trust in Jesus in the midst of them. These people are your fellow church member, right? If we don't reach out to them, if we don't love them, what are we saying? Jesus loved them so much that he decided to die for them, take on flesh for them, to live a perfect life for them, to go to the cross for them, to be raised from the dead for them. That all of that is what Jesus did because he loved them. And so if we don't love them, are we saying that we know how to love better than Jesus? That perhaps we ought not give ourselves to them? And then as you are reaching out to them, seek to do them spiritual good. Seek to do them spiritual good. Ask them how they became a Christian. So, you know, when you guys regularly have fellowship with one another, I hope and pray that you guys would be asking each other, so how did you become a Christian? How did God's grace so sovereignly work in your life to bring you to know God? How did you become a Christian? And then go go on and be encouraged. And then tell them, too, about how you became a Christian. Another thing you can do on Sundays immediately after the service. So, after you know, we have a time of reflection where you guys can think about what was preached and said and how you were benefited spiritually. After the service, after the time of the reflection, talk to those around you about how you were spiritually encouraged and then what spiritually encouraged you. It's not that talking with other Christians about, let's say, March Madness is a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if the content of our conversations never goes beyond what two non-Christians can talk about, then we are actually neglecting the most significant, eternal, and weighty things of God. Right? So when Christians get together, should we not be talking about so many more things than what the world talks about? It's not that those things are bad, but all these other things help us understand all of these other things. And so why aren't we talking about these things? I mean, when's the last time you had a, you, you purposed yourself to do spiritual encouragement for another person? Another thing, ask them how you can be praying for them. Ask the, the, the people that you hang out with how you can be praying for them. Now, that might be spiritually strange for you. Maybe you've never exercised that spiritual discipline before, praying for one another, asking them how they, you can be praying for them. But building up your brothers and sisters in Christ is worth you being a little bit awkward and worth you making other people feel a little bit awkward. So we just want to say, yeah, hey, man, this is awkward. I think Jesus is calling me to pray for you. I want to pray for you. How can I do that? So just go ahead and seek to do that when you hang out with your friends this week. Friends, this love is the cement that holds God's church together. Love for God and then love for one another. It's interesting. um, You know, we're a church plant, a church replant. It's interesting what we are told If you read the church growth literature, what we are told sort of holds the church together or what grows a church. Oftentimes they're forgetting this concept of love as if it's, you know, some sort of thing to be passed over and glanced over. So as a church replant, they say, you know, you've got to work on brand loyalty, produce cool logos and signs and merchandise. You know, they're think T-shirts and pens and mugs and then people will be committed to your church. I mean, that's what, real, that's what people are saying. That's how you grow your church. 
But friends, Jesus calls each and every one of us to be producers, not of goods, but of love. And it's that that will result in a loyalty to something far greater than than what one local church can produce. It produces a loyalty to God who is seen through the local church. So we can wow people with logos and merchandise where people say, wow, this place is cool. And I don't know if you I don't know if you've looked around, but uh, this place is certainly not cool, which I don't mind meeting in a place that's not cool. So we can wow people with logos and merchandise that results in then saying, wow, this place is cool. Or we can display the love of Jesus, which is so unlike the world that people say your Christ is an amazing Christ. And that, I think, by God's grace, is where this church is moving. That's the direction in which this church moves. Now, we don't get it perfect. But by God's grace, through talking to some of you, you know, you are experiencing to some degree fellowship where you're saying, wow, this is a fellowship that I've never really necessarily had before. Now, we need to work on that because we don't do it perfectly. But that requires all of us, even if you haven't experienced it, to try and be working in that direction. What's fantastic is what Paul says. He refers to the church members as being letters of recommendation to the world. And this is what he says. You yourselves, your changed lives are the letters of recommendation. Quote, a letter from Christ written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Jesus says a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But of course we know the reality, right? We know the reality and how difficult it is to constantly be loving God and loving other people in light of our sin. Sometimes our hearts are given to loving the wrong things with the wrong motives. And this brings us to our third point. True Christians obey God by loving others specifically God's children there, and not the world. True Christians obey God by loving others and not the world. Look at 15 to 17, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away along with his desires, But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here we have a warning to watch out for so-called counterfeit loves, as many people throughout history has called um, these things that compete for our love of God. And letting our hearts sink back into loving the world's way in the world's way and then loving the world's things. He says, look, if you do these things, if you do these things, the love of God is not in you. Now, some of you guys might be wondering, doesn't God call us to love the world? Does not God call us to love the world? And then he says, you know, doesn't he call us to evangelize the world? After all, God says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Well, to answer that, you know, we have to look here at how John is using the word world. For God so loved the world. How is John using the word world there? Here, the the world is cast in a negative light and more accurately describes darkness, the moral order that is human beings in defiant rebellion against God. That's the world. 
human beings in defiant rebellion against God. So this is evil. This is wickedness. And that's the most common way that John uses the word world. Occasionally it's used neutrally. So like in John 21, 25, you know, the world is like a library. John says, if everyone were to write the things that Jesus did, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that could be written there. It's neutral. It's like a library. But here in our text, do not love the world. It is not neutral. It's the same thing as in John 3, 16. World is the world order that fundamentally stands opposed to God. And that gives meaning to our text as well as John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Don Carson, New Testament scholar, he says this. He says, you know, when we read this, this passage here, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. We aren't to say, wow, I think God's love is so wonderful because the world is so big. There, God's love is just so wonderful because he can love so many more people than we can. Don Carson says, no, we're not supposed to think that. God's love, we must not think that God's love must be wonderful because the world is so big. But we are supposed to think, wow, God's love is so wonderful because the world is so bad. And then all of a sudden you get away from thinking like, look at these 7 billion people that God loves to depth. Look how deep God's love is. And look to the extent to which he goes to rescue such bad and defiant people who are in constant rebellion against God. The world is so bad, but yet, but yet God still loves and he sends his son that whosoever, no matter how bad they are, Whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. His desire is that sinners be saved. So in that sense, yes, we should love the world. We should desire that sinners ought to be saved. That is genuine love for their souls. We desire them to be set free from sin. But here in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, John's talking about something very different. Something very different. Don Carson writes, God loves the world with a holy love of redemption. We are not to love it with a love of selfish participation. God loves the world to save sinners. We are not to love the world so as to share in their sin. God's love for the world inspires all and God's condescension, that is eventually in the incarnation. Our love for the world evokes disgust at our lust. You see the difference there? John here is talking about something very different. He's talking about being partnered with the world. And in that sense, he says, do not love the world. And what is it that we are not supposed to love? Look there in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, that is, or he explains, the desires of the flesh. So this is the worldly, these are the worldly desires that stem from our fallen sinful nature. So our nature determines what we love. So what comes to mind here are the cravings of our sinful nature inherent in all of us. So that's the desires of the flesh. What else are we not to love? The desires of the eyes. These desires lay hold of the things that our eyes behold. And what we see and what we're captivated by and therefore we want. And then the pride of life. So this here is just pride and arrogance. Look what I've made for myself. Look what I've accomplished. And he says those things, the love of that is in the world is not from the father, but is from the world. So these loves and then loving these things is a far downgrade from heavenly love. So what is the source of these loves? Our sinful natures. When we're loving the world, the love of the world. 
And if these loves stem from our sinful nature, why would we ever want to trust them? Just because we have an intense desire to have or to do something doesn't mean we ought to do them, nor does it mean that the very desire is good. And what is the end of this worldly love? Is it not to fulfill your cravings and your eyes, to satisfy your pride? And where do you find the strength to love in this way and to love these things? Ultimately, it seems that it depends on your integrity of motive, your consistency of loving, which is, if you're honest, is incredibly inconsistent, incredibly inconsistent. All of these things, the way the world loves, the things the world loves are, as verse 17 says, look there, passing away. They are temporary, undependable and unreliable. So you see how different this Christian love is supposed to be. Don't love the things of the world because they're passing away, but love God and then love the people that God gave his son to die for. Our love of others finds its source in God, who is love and who is love from the very beginning and who sends his son to die out of love. The end of our love is not that, that we would fulfill our carnal flesh, but that God would be glorified and that we would be satisfied in him as we strive to imitate the love of Christ who exhausted himself on the cross. The strength of our love, is it limited to our fickleness? Is it limited to our weak-willed minds and bodies but comes from the strength of Christ himself who endured the cross for sinners? Now, love like that shows us very much to be partnered with the king in fellowship with the king in will, purpose, and desire. Verse 17, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Of course, the Christians that John was writing to, they knew this, just like I'm sure a lot of you guys, you practically, you know this. But yet they needed reminders. And look at the way that John gives these reminders to the to Christians there in 12 and 14 or 12 through 14 of chapter two. So here he writes in these with these fatherly fatherly reminders giving them strength to obey. And we conclude with this, with this point, strength to obey. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I, am write, I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, you young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So when he says, I write to you children, he's writing to the whole church and then he breaks up the whole church into two different categories, fathers and then young men. He says, I write to you children because what does it say? They know the father. They've been forgiven as opposed to the heretics. They know this God that has so loved them. And then he addresses the fathers and the young men. Look at the fathers there. Verse 13. Uh, he affirms them and encourages them to keep on going in the right direction. Obey God. You have known him who is from the beginning. This real Jesus. The real God. And then he says the same thing in 14. He speaks to, he speaks to the young man there. You have overcome the evil one already. You don't need some special knowledge to be saved. You have the knowledge. And you have this Christ. I write to you because you are strong and the word abides in you. You already know it. It is really in you as opposed to the false professors. And you have overcome the evil one. You are partnered with God. He says, continue believing, continue obeying, 
Continue loving. Real Christians obey God by loving God's children and not the world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that your way is a way of love. So, Father, when we are tempted to simply be obsessed with the words of your law, Lord, may you remind us that it is you who stands behind the law. And so your character is displayed in all of your commands. So, Lord, may we approach your commands in such a way where we see you and behold your glory and your character. And that leads us and compels us to give ourselves for other people. Help us, each and every single one of us, individuals of this particular local church, help us learn to give ourselves for the spiritual good of others, just like Jesus did. Expand our hearts, we pray. And Father, we ask that through our love for one another, that truly the world would see us and know that we are Christ's disciples. In your name we pray. Amen.